Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, that you would love us and draw us to yourself. Lord, we continue to stand amazed at your mercy and grace poured out on your people. That you would draw us in this life and for the life to come, that we would abide in your house. That is what draws us to want to know you, to want to see you, to want to hear your word. We pray that your spirit would guide our study of it this morning, that you would bring conviction, application, encouragement to our hearts through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Gabe, for the introduction. It is a pleasure to call Gabe a friend. I I have to say a few years ago when he was brought on staff here, I was so excited. I love biblical counseling. I love the spread of biblical counseling, and I am so excited for what God is doing here at Hope, uh, just in terms of growing the vision for counseling people from the Word of God, the fact that it is sufficient, uh, that it is powerful, it is life-changing, so it is just exciting to see what God is doing here. Uh, Pastor Leek and I overlapped, I think just briefly, out at Master Seminary. I got there in early 97, and he was graduating shortly thereafter, but it was really back here uh, that I first met Tom at at his instigation um, as he was beginning to implement his vision for the Mid-Atlantic Bible Fellowship and just his desire to see churches that were like-minded come together, pastors come together and grow and be encouraged and do ministry and partner in whatever ways we could, and had a chance to be a part of that first um, Bible conference uh, that, that was done back in 2007, 2008, and then over the next 15 years, we we interacted from time to time, periodically, um, living on the south side of the Beltway reminds you of you know, the, the, the distance sometimes isn't all that great. It's the traffic uh, that makes the difference. Um, but um, the, the two things I just wanted to say that, that always stood out about Tom. One, and none of, neither of these are new for those of you who've been here through his time, was um, just boundless energy and vision uh, for the ministry of the Word of God and discipling people, wanting to see that ministry carried on, made as effective as possible in as many places as possible. But the other thing, too, um, was just even though we would only connect, it might be a year or two at least between times we'd see each other, there was just always that sense of warmth and genuine friendship. A guy who just wanted to um, engage with you, let you know he loved you, let you know he was interested in, in what your church was doing and how the Lord was working in it. And I just so grateful for having been his friend. Uh, And so it's a privilege this morning to be with you and to be able to bring the word to you. Philippians chapter three, if you'd like to turn there, Philippians three, what's a weakness of yours? What's a weakness of yours? Have you ever gotten that question in the job interview? Give me a strength and a weakness. Hopefully you're not one of those people that say, well, my weakness is I probably work too hard, right? I'm just, kind of a perfectionist, and that gets to me sometimes and wears me down, right? Strength and weakness. Inevitably, our culture loves strength. The the t-shirts don't say be weak, they say be strong. Instagram has the hashtag find your strength or find your strong. There's like a million posts that have that hashtag, and if you look for like find your weakness, it's about 800, And, and, and those are 
find your weakness so that you can get rid of it so that you can be strong because that's what we want to be is you want to be strong. Humanity celebrates strength and ambition and drive and determination and all of those things that, that the culture says are good. Weakness is treated as some kind of inadequacy, some lack of sufficiency in some way. We all struggle with weakness. We all know that we have weaknesses and yet the culture sort of encourages us to tamp those down. We see that in politicians. Have you ever done anything wrong? No, everything's been right. If I, if I admit that I've done something wrong or said something wrong, then that's a weakness. And that's something that's going to be exploited by my opponent in some way. And so it's no surprise that even when you look at the broad world of evangelicalism, one of the, the aberrations of Christian teaching is this overemphasis on, on prosperity and positivity and how everything is about living my best life and, and being strong and being confident, fulfilling my dreams. We can easily be tempted, I think, to shun that sense of inadequacy. And so on Sunday and the rest of the week, we sort of have a subtle ambition to, to look like that, that smiling, confident profile picture that we want people to see, even when we know that's not always who we are. For the believer in Jesus Christ, we understand that we are weak. I, I, I can prove it to you by, by one question, which is, how are you doing in your struggle against temptation and sin? Isn't that one of those places that immediately we... We come to grips with, with who we are and that we are still creatures that struggle in the flesh. What, what are the words, thoughts, deeds that so often trip you up and your sinful go-to response when you're tired or you've, you've been pushed and, and how are you doing in that area? Even as one who, who fully trusts in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we've been celebrating what he's done this morning, that, that churning of sin in our own hearts can still be a reminder of just how weak we are. So what do we do with that? Here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us some, some insight into this. One of the lessons in Philippians chapter 3 is that the gospel of Jesus Christ shows us that we, we cannot be saved by our own strength. We know that. We, 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 we've conceded that fact and we understand that that's true. We can't be saved by our accomplishments or by anything that's in and of ourselves. It's by His grace. But also, this passage reminds us that we cannot live by our own strength, that we are still weak people who depend on the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I, I think we, we accept the former part of that statement. Obviously, I, I can't be saved based on my own strength or accomplishments, anything that's, that's of me. But it's the living part. It's, it's the resting in the fact that I am weak and struggling with inadequacy and I need to know the grace of God and the strength of God. And I think both parts of that equation are here in Philippians chapter 3. This is the second half of his letter to the church at Philippi. You know the letter, often the, the, the epistle of joy. Paul reminds them to be rejoicing in the first couple of chapters, rejoicing in God's work in their lives. Philippians 2, 17, he writes, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. And then he says, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Rejoice. He wants them to, to have joy in the work that God is doing in them. A few verses later in chapter 2, 
He tells them that he's sending their brother Epaphroditus back to them to minister to them after he has dealt with this harrowing illness. And in Philippians 2.28, he says, Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. Again, it's, it's joy. Receive him with joy, have rejoicing. And then, of course, chapter 3 begins with familiar words. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul's repeated these exhortations to rejoice, and, and these are not sort of just random praise the Lord's that, that just sort of get dropped in from time to time. Rejoice, rejoice, as if they just sort of uh, fill a space. These are very purposeful because the, the exhortations to rejoice are coupled with warnings throughout the book of Philippians that the Christian life is not always easy. There, are, there is suffering that you will face. There's opposition that you will face. In fact, at the end of chapter one, he's warning them to stand firm in joy because there are false teachers coming who will challenge them and suffering will befall them. And at the end of chapter one, he writes in verse 29, for to you, it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You will face strife. You will face contention and opposition simply for following Jesus, simply for trusting in him. That's why he says in chapter 3, verse 1, it's good for me to say this again and again, to, to remind you of this and for it to be a safeguard for you, because I understand what it is you will face. I've, I've faced that strife myself, and you need to be reminded to rejoice in the Lord. Imitate my joy in suffering and rejoice just as you've seen disciples like Epaphroditus do. But to do that, to genuinely rejoice in suffering requires a right outlook on suffering and hardship. Requires that we as believers have a, have a, a gospel-centered perspective on what it is to have weakness, to understand weakness and strength in God's economy, because these things will happen, there will be suffering, and so we need the right perspective. And that's what he's offering us really here in chapter 3. He's teaching about the, the context here as false teachers, is what he starts with, because they are facing that in Philippi. And in 3.2, he describes sort of this performance-based religion that they are teaching, this evil system of worship where it's, it's about me doing things in order to earn God's favor. And so circumcision and rituals, I, I do these things because this is what, what will get God on my side, will please him toward me. And then Paul gets very personal and he says, essentially, I, I know this is the case from experience. I know it from my own background as somebody who, who fell into this and, and who taught this same sort of religion by sort of fleshly means kind of teaching that he did. And so he, he brings it back to himself in chapter 3, verse 4. If you look at Philippians 3, 4, he says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Just stop there a second. He's saying when it comes to, to, to pedigree, when it comes to credentials, I'm not sure somebody could come up with a resume that's more impressive than mine. 
I, I, I've done all of the rituals. I'm from the line of Benjamin. You know who else was from the tribe of Benjamin? King Saul, who, who probably Paul's parents named him after. He says, circumcised. Benjamin's a good tribe. Benjamin was a northern tribe that actually aligned with the south, with Judah, and, and were known to be warriors to lead the way in, in, in the fight. And so there are references to Benjamin that, that give it the, 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 the strength, the weight sort of that Paul's bringing to it here when he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. But then it's not just pedigree. He says, I've got, I've got all the right background, but then I've got the performance, the rest of verse 5 as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. He says, if, if you want to talk like these false teachers are talking, which is about performing in order to earn something, I am the king when it comes to performance. I've got the resume to prove it. No one was a match for Paul. He had set out to be a rabbi of rabbis, and at one point in his life, he was convinced he was. If there was ever a case to be made for qualifications, this guy is scrupulous about his adherence to, to rituals and observing the, the points of the law. And when other Jews began to follow this Jesus from Nazareth and, and seemed in Paul's mind to be straying from strict observance to the law and putting this emphasis on grace, what does Paul do? He persecutes them. He leads the way and shows zeal in going after these rebels. Paul was committed to the zealous destruction of Christianity until, you know the scene, until that moment on the road to Damascus when he is confronted by the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, Paul, why? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In that moment, Paul comes to realize that the only basis for a right standing before the Lord is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's only by the, the work of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he sees all of his fleshly efforts now pale in the light of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Suddenly he, he gets the right perspective and he sees that it is the Son of God who has given himself as a ransom for sinners and that's whom he must trust. And so verse 7, he says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So impeccable pedigree, determined, zealous performance. He spent years on this road, and now he realizes this is trash. This is dung is really what the, the language he uses there. This was worthless. It is Christ who is all in all, and it is Christ that I want to know. Jesus Christ was the one who was perfect in a way that, that I could never even dream of being. And yet, it is the Holy One, Jesus, who bore in his body the shame of the cross and died to bear the punishment. Paul is, is, is acknowledging here the punishment for all of Paul's sinful boasting and all of his arrogance, just as ours. Jesus Christ bore in his body the pride by which Paul once claimed to be a blameless servant of God and of the law. That pride was put on Jesus. 
And the cup of God's wrath was poured out against Jesus that he might suffer in our place. Life-changing, earth-shattering truths for Paul as they should be for us. I am inadequate. I cannot perform to bring about my own salvation. But he doesn't stop there. That's sort of the, the first half of the proposition. Let me, let me just, one other scripture just to, to show, I, th- I think, sort of Paul's ability to be startled at what Jesus has done. 1 Corinthians 1, 27, he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. This is an educated scholar steeped in Jewish religion saying, want to know why? why Jesus drew me to himself? Because I'm a fool. Because I am foolish and I am one of those debased things, unwise. And he has, he has called weak, lowly, despised, foolish people to himself. And I am one of them. He, he's, not, he's not at that point when he's talking, to, the, the Corinthians loved wisdom. And he's not at that point trying to, to parrot the words of his opponents in, in sort of a mocking way. He's saying, no, folks, this is who we are. Let's agree on this. We are those weak, lowly, despised, foolish people who have been brought into the kingdom of God by the gracious work of Jesus Christ. So that speaks to the first part of my proposition I gave you at the beginning. The gospel shows us we can't be saved by our own strength. But here's really what I I want to key on, and that's the rest of this, where he shows us that we cannot live by our own strength either. We don't get saved and then suddenly have it all figured out second part about not living by our own strength is what he, he takes up next. Before I read the next few verses, and, and they're familiar to you, and so when I ask you this fill-in-the-blank sort of statement, you'll already know where I'm going probably, but go ahead and play along with me. If you had to finish this sentence, I want to know Jesus and become like him in his blank. I want to know Jesus and I want to become like him in his finish that thought, what would you say? So let's read it. Philippians 3 verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed or being like to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Verse 9, Paul had just said, I want to be found in Christ, justified by his work, his righteousness, him saving me. So I put my faith fully in in Jesus Christ and in what he has done. And having been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, now, he says, my goal is to know intimately Christ. It is to, to grow in my experience and knowledge of who he is and live in the power of his resurrection. And then he says, and share in his sufferings that I might become like him in his death. Paul had had seen his own weakness and foolishness and sin and surrendered to Jesus. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, then praise God, you, you and I have done the same. We have come to that place of surrendering to him as Savior. But once there, Paul does not suddenly revert back to Now I've got it. Now I'm strong and now I can stand on my own. Instead, 
He's emphasizing here again, I am still weak and in desperate need of the power of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I want to know Jesus and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And in order to know that, I have to experience the sufferings of Christ as well. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the divine power of God. It's the power that saves me. It's the power that Paul revels in in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel is, it, it gives us that message of resurrection power that saves, but also is that by which we live. As we grow weary in the flesh, as we're enticed by temptations around us, as we're confronted with suffering, as we face relational hardships, pain, circumstances that, that are confusing and difficult, all of that continually reminds us of our own weakness and our need, like Paul, to say, I, I need to know the power of the resurrection and to commune with Christ in his suffering that I might be like him in his death. The temptation here when we, we think of, of power, just sort of isolate it, is we, we tend to tie power with glory and, and victory. When I think of Christ's power, my, my flesh wants to fill that in simply with this, this success and prosperity and good health and abundant blessing. And listen, there's, there's, a, there's a sense of, of rightness to it because everything that we have is from his good grace and his kindness. And so the, 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 whatever blessing he does pour out on us is his kindness and his hand, and, and it's a work of his power. But the power that's described here is resurrection power. The power of God to bring victory over the worst possible enemies, sin and death, that which captures and holds and, and damns to eternal separation from God and hell. But what it says here is that resurrection power goes hand in hand with suffering. I may know the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. It, it, it's only as we commune with Christ in his suffering that we begin to know the experience of his power in the resurrection but by experiencing the sorrow and the hardship and the weakness. When, when it says here being conformed to his death there at the end of verse 10, becoming like him in his death, being conformed to his death, he uses a, a Greek verb that's only found here in, 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 the, Greek, in the Greek Bible, that this, this is the only place you'll find some morpho, to be formed together with. It's the idea of being molded into a, a, a particular form. But what's fascinating is the, the grammar behind it. It's a passive verb. So it's, it's saying, I am being formed into something. There is something outside of me that is molding me into the likeness of Christ. And in this case, he's made it very clear. It is our communion with Christ in his suffering and experience of his resurrection power. That, that suffering, that hardship, and then the power of his resurrection are molding me into the the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's also the, the grammar, it's present tense. Present tense meaning ongoing. This is, the, this is the continuous nature. So when it says being conformed into his likeness, being conformed into his image, he is saying that this 
This is regular for us. The, the, the struggle we have here is, for the most part, we, we can be very comfortable. We can go through long seasons where we feel like we don't necessarily experience suffering. That's different. Some of you here are, are, are in the valley in this moment. You are walking through, through troubled times. And so this is very real to you. For, for many of us, the experience, sometimes we feel detached from this. And yet what he says here is, this is how weakness and suffering and resurrection power are to continuously be at work in the life of the believer, reminding me that I am desperate for his help, that I am weak apart from him. For our lives to grow more like Christ, they are to be conformed to the shape of his suffering and his resurrection. And so as a believer, it's normal to experience his power through fellowship with his suffering. This is where, where I think it gets hard for us. I want to be like Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to be conformed to his image. And yet he says to share, to koinonia, to fellowship with his sufferings, to become intimate with the sufferings of Christ, to walk through conflict and hardship and persecution and whatever else we might experience. He says, I... I must experience the power of his resurrection, but I don't really fully experience that power until I understand the fellowship of his sufferings. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, my life as a believer is a process of being transformed from, from where I am into the image of Christ, a process that will go on and on until I am finally in his presence. The temptation when we, when we think of that, of that transformation, is to think only in terms of outcomes. If I am to be more like Christ... I need to be more loving, more humble, more holy, more gracious, more sacrificial, more on and on. And, and, and listen, there's, there's a point to that. If I'm to be like Christ, I'm, I'm going to have to also be obedient to Christ and do what Christ has called me to do. But it's not just do it because the message of the gospel is that a chief way that, that God is transforming me to become more loving and gracious and sacrificial and humble to be more like Christ is by leading me through experiences that expose my weakness. It's to be taking me through experiences that show me that I am still drawn to pride and I am still drawn to being unloving if I yield to my flesh. I am still drawn to being selfish for my own comfort. And, and God in his kindness leads us through experiences that keep exposing that weakness and, and help me to commune with suffering so that they would mold me into the image of Christ and his power to strengthen me. Suffering, suffering that's inflicted on us. Suffering that's brought on by circumstances. Sometimes suffering comes at the hands of others. Sometimes it's, it's the result of our own foolishness. It's consequences of things we've done. Suffering's real. It can hurt and, and it can be debilitating. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, it is exposing the, the weakness of my flesh. It is reminding me that I am desperately in need of power from God, something from outside of myself to, to transform me. I need strength. And it reminds me to cry out to Him, to rest in Him. That, that suffering, God in his kindness uses suffering to teach me to 
repent of sin, uses it to teach me humility and, and, and about my inadequacy. It can cause me to cry out for help when I'm dealing with some, some difficult person. But it is there that God longs to meet us with his power, that he longs for us to experience his working in us. And where you fellowship with Jesus in his suffering is where the Spirit of God then begins to, to raise you up. That's why that power of the resurrection, it, it, it's when we get to that wonderful place, and we don't often think about it as a wonderful place of inadequacy and weakness, we see God work in so many wonderful ways. Back 15 years ago, I went through just some real struggles in, in pastoral ministry with some church conflict and stuff that was just heartbreaking. And, and I met with um, a, a pastor from another town who took me out to breakfast and, and I, I sort of bemoaning, you know, sort of telling him my circumstances and looking for a shoulder to cry on because he was another pastor and, and he would understand. And he said, um, he said, isn't it exciting what God has done in this season? It wasn't really what I was thinking at the moment. And I, I said, what do you mean? And he said, okay, so I was probably about five, six years out of seminary. He said, you take all that you learned in seminary and you take all that you've learned in the past year. And where did you learn more about God's character and God's strength and God's care and his love for you? And it was like, oh, light came on. This has been an exciting time. Now I see what you're saying. That's God and his kindness that he, he allows us to be in these kind of situations where that suffering and weakness is necessary for us. So that when, when we come to that fill in the blank, I want to know Jesus and become like him in his, let's be honest, death is not the first thing that, that comes to mind at that point. We, we, we want to put all sorts of other things in there. And yet that's precisely what the text says. By God's design, we are meant to regularly experience weakness so we would regularly see this as an opportunity for him to show his strength and to show his kindness and his grace through us. So if I enter into sickness, enter into loneliness, enter into depression, enter into job loss, enter into pain because of someone else's sin, enter into childlessness. If I enter into that state of just being beset with temptations, if I mock for my faith in Jesus Christ, Scripture takes me back to the gospel and says, remember, remember when God graciously opened your eyes to show you that, that you, didn't, you, you couldn't commend yourself to him on your own? You couldn't prove yourself to him on your own? You, you brought nothing. You simply trusted in what Jesus Christ did in his death and resurrection because you had nothing else to give. Come to me in that same way. Come to me desperate and in need of help, and I want to show you strength. To be conformed to the image of Jesus is to be conformed to his death and resurrection. We need this. I mean, we need this we understand fundamentally from a gospel perspective because Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, as a gift of God, not of works, so that no one would what? Boast, yeah. We need this because we, we can be prideful. We can want to chalk one up on the accomplishment side that, that, that we did. And yet God in his kindness 
continues this pattern, not just at our salvation, but in our walk with Christ, because we are a forgetful people and need to be reminded that our sinful pride and arrogance still need to be driven out of us, and and weakness has a way of doing that, suffering and temptation and hardship. When When God saved us, he left us in bodies of flesh, in a world of temptation, with the propensity to sin still alive. And as one writer put it, that means God's design is that you and I will actually come to know and love him better as a desperate and weak sinner in continual need of grace than you would as a triumphant Christian warrior who wins each and every battle against sin. And get that? We come to know and love him better because we, we see what he's done in our hearts and how he's transformed us, and, and, and what he has accomplished through us. We have fellowship with his suffering so that we might better experience his power. I wouldn't want to leave this passage without stopping at verse 11 for just a second. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Suffering messages tend to, tend to make us think about how... Ah, What's God have in store for me for thinking about suffering? I don't want to embrace that. I don't know what that means. But listen, here's, here's where Paul takes that. And he says, by God's grace, he will, he will carry us through suffering and rising because he has an ultimate hope in mind. All of the suffering, all of the hardships in this life are fleeting. That's why we read from 2 Corinthians 4 earlier, these light, momentary afflictions that don't feel like it when we're in the midst of them. But they are, they are building up for us an eternal weight of glory. Because as Paul says here, this, this, this knowledge and experience of resurrection power goes on and on throughout life. This transforming into the image of Christ goes on and on. But it is not complete in this life. It is complete ultimately at the moment of resurrection, when we stand in the presence of our Savior, someday we leave behind this life and these bodies of sin will be brought to nothing, as Paul said in Romans 6, and we will be raised and gloriously given resurrection bodies and we will be like him. First John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's our hope. That's our hope in whatever you're walking through this morning, whatever you're enduring, whatever God has in store for the weeks and months ahead, that as we, as we endure suffering, like that which, which our Savior went through, we on a far smaller level, but it gives us a taste anyway of that suffering, that we fellowship with him in suffering. Also experience then his power as he works in our desperate need. But he continues to remind us that we eagerly await the day when we will be before him and we will stand in his presence. And the sin and the temptation will be past relics and we will glory in our Savior in the one who suffered in our place and completed the work on our behalf. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for 
brothers and sisters here at Hope Bible Church who love you, who are striving to glorify you. Father, I think in particular this morning, I, I don't know most everyone here in this room, but I'm confident that there are brothers and sisters here whose health is not great, whose job is not great, who are experiencing some kind of relational conflict, some measure of loss. Lord, this morning, would you, would you bring encouragement to their hearts to remind them again that you are an ever-present help in time of trouble and that it is your, your desire, your aim, your purpose to pour out power, power the, the likes of which raised Jesus from out of the tomb, that you are eager to pour that power into their lives, to show them the, the goodness of your grace, strength to sustain them, strength that would help them to rejoice even in a time of hardship and sorrow, that they would still find an inner peace and gladness. Father, help us as your followers to live in the good of these truths, to believe that the gospel that has rescued us from our sin and lostness is the same gospel that sustains us and strengthens us and empowers us to grow more and more into the image of Christ. And thank you, Father, that at the end of all of this is what we will be thinking about in particular all this week as we move toward next Sunday, as we worship and ponder and consider the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is for we who are trusting in Jesus that great hope that we will attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, I pray that if there's anyone listening this morning for whom this, is, this seems distant, they don't feel like they have hope, they are caught in circumstances and feeling like there is no way out, I, I pray this morning that your grace would be abundant to show them the goodness of Jesus Christ, the, the very same truth that, that Paul shared for us in his own testimony that, that multiple believers in here could share of, of having come to that place of recognizing that I am a sinner. I cannot make myself right before God. It is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his conquering sin and death that there is hope. And would you, would you draw them to trust fully in Jesus as Savior this day? Thank you for your great work in the lives of your people and your ongoing work of transforming us to be more like our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.